I'm San Francisco Chronicle Managing Editor Damian Bulwa, and you're listening to Fifth and Mission. Today, the problem with statues. Over the weekend, the national reckoning over racism that was ignited by the police killing of George Floyd again stirred protest and controversy in the city when demonstrators toppled and spray-painted statues all over Golden Gate Park. My guest today is actually my co-host on the podcast, columnist Heather Knight. We're going to talk about why the fight over monuments matters and how San Francisco has already been at the center of this debate. Heather, great to see you. Great to have you back. I'm glad you're back at the Chronicle as managing editor and as my co-host of Fifth and Mission. How's your first day going so far? It's been it's been crazy. I'm getting used to uh, being at the Chronicle remotely, working from home. Um, I'm not quite used to it yet. You'll get there. We're all still learning. <laughs> well, thank you. It's great to be back. As people may know, Audrey Cooper, who was the editor-in-chief of the Chronicle and co-host of the podcast, left. Um, I have returned as managing editor. I'm extremely excited to be back, um, not only at the newspaper, but on the podcast. And I hope people... Join us um, today, uh, you know, a great subject. You know, one of the debates about this issue over monuments um, is whether it is important and why it's important. Why is this causing so much controversy in San Francisco? I think that, you know, so many huge issues have been raised over the past several weeks related to the police killing of George Floyd. You know, we obviously have major problems in police departments across the country seeming to target um, black men particularly. And that has raised big questions about the criminal justice system as a whole, um, education, prison reform, so many big issues that need to be worked out and resolved. But a much easier subject is just toppling statues. We've seen protesters knock over statues really around the world since um, these protests started as a way to take out the symbols of um, some of the racism that has existed in our country and around the world for so many centuries. So it's much easier to tackle than these big issues, which obviously will require more work, but it's something that can be done quicker. And um, they do symbolize a lot of the issues that we're talking about. Yeah, I have to tell you, Heather, when I went to a wedding several years ago in North Carolina, I was surprised that at the center of town, there was a Confederate monument. And just imagining, um, you know, the people in the town, the black residents having to contend with this every day and and people not wanting to take it down. um, It's, you know, it's really, um, it's really oppressive. Right. I mean, of course, there are Confederate generals and soldiers depicted all over the South. But there's, um, Issues and symbols like this in all of our culture. There was just Aunt Jemima was removed as a Quaker Oats symbol. I mean, it's kind of crazy that that existed for so long. There are still these sorts of horrible symbols in sports like the Tomahawk Chop and the Washington Redskins that we've held onto for so long. So I think this these statues fit into that um, discussion about how symbols can be really hurtful, even if they don't seem to matter all that much in the scheme of things. So, Heather, tell us what happened in San Francisco over the weekend. It was Friday night, right? Right. So two big things happened on the statue front in San Francisco last week. Thursday morning, the city um, decided itself to remove the huge two-ton statue of Christopher Columbus in front of Coit Tower. That was a voluntary, purposeful move by the city because they'd heard that um, protesters were planning to topple that. And obviously, a two-ton statue coming crashing down without the proper equipment could have been um, very harmful to people in the area. Uh, The plan was to toss it into the bay over Pier 31. So the city um, 
beat the protesters to the punch and have removed it and put it in storage to determine what will happen to that long term. Then the next day on Friday night, protesters went to Golden Gate Park and um, their main target seemed to be the Father Junipero Serra statue in the music concourse there. They um, tied a rope around it and pulled and toppled him. Then um, it went on to uh, Francis Scott Key, who was a slaveholder and uh, the famously the author of the... Um, national anthem and he was toppled then it got a little bit murkier they also pulled over the statue of um, president ulysses s grant who actually um, helped end the civil war and fought against slavery so some people are having an issue with him being included they also spray painted um, the cervantes uh, statue which just seemed kind of random and um, spray painted some other parts of Golden Gate Park. So that got, of course, a lot of attention. And the Parks Department has um, worked hard to clean up the area and reopen it. Yeah, you said murkier. And there was a really interesting debate over the weekend about the Ulysses S. Grant statue. And and some people contending that the protesters had gone too far. Um, Others contending that the whole idea of statues has really been centered around white men, and it's a version of history um, that needs to be re-examined. Right. I've been writing a lot about statues over the past few years. Um, I just find this topic really interesting. And um, my interest was piqued by learning that San Francisco had 87 statues around the city in the public collection. This isn't including um, privately owned statues like those at Oracle Park that are owned by the Giants. But um, publicly owned statues, 87 of them in San Francisco, and only two represent real women. There's the Florence Nightingale statue in front of Laguna Honda and a bust of Diane Feinstein, former mayor, um, in front of city, or excuse me, in front of the mayor's chambers inside City Hall. So those are the only two. That was a problem three years ago, and we still have the same number now. And there's a, an, an effort to have a third statue, three out of 87. <laughs> but that, I guess there's, there's fewer than written. 87 now since some of the men have been removed. But yeah, the ratio is still really skewed. There was a plan the Board of Supervisors approved um, to build a third of Maya Angelou outside the main library. This was three years ago. It is funded. It is planned. They got the vote approved. Everybody likes it. It's a pretty non-controversial idea. Um, who doesn't like Maya Angelou? But it is stalled because of the famous bureaucracy and red tape at City Hall. There was um, a request for proposals from for artists last year. They narrowed it down to three. The Arts Commission chose the winner, Lava Thomas, um, a black artist in the East Bay, who created a um, monument that looked like a book with uh, Maya Angelou's face on the front and a quote from her across the bottom. It was uh, pretty much all set. And then Supervisor Catherine Stephanie... Um, said she didn't like it. It was her idea in the first place, and she wanted a real statue like the ones you see in Golden Gate Park that just got toppled that are actual, you know, old-fashioned figures rather than anything more creative like the cover of a book with her face on it. So um, they went back to square one, and there is still no statue of Maya Angelou. All right, Heather, let's take a quick break. When we come back, I want to ask you about the city's response to what happened over the weekend. Welcome back, Heather Knight. Again, very excited to be uh, joined by my co-host on Fifth and Mission moving forward and also my guest today. And we're talking about the issue of monuments and statues uh, that really exploded in San Francisco over the weekend with protesters toppling statues. 
Heather, what was the response by the mayor and city leaders over what happened in Golden Gate Park? Uh, mayor Breed put out a statement saying she uh, understood the issues behind the people wanting to topple statues, um, but she was frustrated that so much taxpayer money would be spent to uh, clean graffiti and vandalism and um, and you know get the music concourse ready to be opened again. She also announced that she would be um, creating a commission that would look at this issue moving forward. It will be led by the Arts Commission and also have representatives from the Rec and Parks Department and the Human Rights Commission to take a closer look at what statues we do have, which are worth keeping and which are not. Um, but I think that the protesters had a valid point, which was that we have looked at these types of issues for decades with very little movement in San Francisco. Um, for example, the Columbus statue in front of Coit Tower was... Um, um, really disliked and fought against for decades. Nothing happened until protesters threatened to topple it and, and send it into the bay, which would have been dangerous. Similarly, people um, fought against the Pioneer Monument, a section of that. That's the big one between um, the Asian Art Museum and the main library, which had, was erected in the 1890s. So obviously a very um, old fashioned depiction, which showed a Native American um, almost naked laying on his back with a missionary and cowboy standing above him. Native Americans had fought against that statue for decades, had uh, vandalized it in the past, and nothing was ever done about it um, until uh, just really recently when the Arts Commission finally voted to remove it. So these things uh, do not happen quickly enough when people have problems with them. And I think that's at some of the root of the protesters uh, move to just remove them th themselves on Friday night. Yeah, you mentioned the impatience of people that have opposed these statues. There are monuments that, that you mentioned about that are names of cities, names of streets. Uh, the Washington Redskins, despite a broad agreement, the Chronicle doesn't even use the name in stories about the football team. Um, because it's a slur, um, those cannot be simply removed. And, and as we see, they are not, and they are still with us today. Right. I mean, so many of these um, examples have been derided, rightly so, for decades, and nothing's ever done about them, which I think is kind of the point of these protesters. You know, if you're not going to take matters into your own hands as a sports team owner or a government leader or, you know, the owner of a corporation who... Um, has Aunt Jemima on its syrup or whatever it may be, that we will just do it ourselves. Last question, Heather. After the toppling of these statues, there was sort of a separate debate about Ulysses S. Grant, who had um, been celebrated for some things he did, including passing the 15th Amendment, giving African-Americans the right to vote, but others who said, you know, he owned another human being. And there's this debate that's, that's come about whether we might go too far in, in toppling these monuments. Um, why, why is that important for people to, to try to find a line there? Yeah, I thought that was an interesting point. Um, clearly nobody, uh, is perfect and nobody depicted in statues is perfect. And I think a lot of people felt that, um, President Grant was, um, far better than he was a problem, especially of his time. He, he owned one slave, but did, um, grant the slaves freedom, um, and did a lot of good in including sending troops to the South to fight the KKK, um, and helping to end the civil war. Uh, one, I can't remember where I uh, heard this, but I thought, um, one distinguishing way of looking at this was important, which is that Confederate statues are celebrating people because of something horrible they did, whereas there are statues 
that can celebrate people despite of something horrible they did. So, for example, George Washington owned slaves, but he was also the founder of our country and the first president. He may be worth celebrating. Um, may not. You know, that's up to people's own interpretations. But just to celebrate somebody because they own slaves and and led the fight to um, separate uh, from the North is probably not a great idea in 2020. So that's one way to look at it. Yeah, no, it is an interesting way to look at it. And then again, for some people, that's that's not the frame they want to look at it. And, um, and I think that's why it's important to listen to all these voices. All right, Heather, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me back as co-host. Before we go, we want to pay tribute to our former colleague, David Perlman, He was a legendary reporter who wrote for the Chronicle until he was 98 years old. We worked with him for many years. He was wonderful. Um, I've edited his work. He died this weekend at the age of 101. Yeah, he was really something. I loved working with him and just um, reading about everything he covered in his career at the Chronicle, which spanned decades, was just fascinating from the landing on the moon to the beginnings of the AIDS crisis to um, traveling to the Galapagos Islands and reporting from a boat there for two months. It was just uh, a fantastic career and a fantastic man. And listeners of Fifth and Mission should uh, listen to the Total SF podcast, which now has a tribute to Dr. Dave, as we called him, out now. And we wanted to share a couple of highlights from that podcast. So first, let's hear Total SF host Peter Hartlob talking to Chronicle reporter Kevin Fagan. Kevin co-wrote the Chronicle's obituary of David Perlman with Steve Rubenstein. We're going to talk a little bit about our friend, uh, David Perlman. Worked at the Chronicle for 67 years, died at age 101 this week. And Kevin, you wrote a beautiful obituary with Steve Rubenstein. Yeah, thanks, Peter. I know we... uh... We all loved Dave, and he was he was so dear to our hearts and 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 an inspiration. I tell you, watching him grow year after year after year like that and stay vital. I even edited him many times, and he'd turn in copy in his nineties, and it was his, it was it was clean. I mean, his yeah. his fingers, you know, his two finger typing. Then he'd make some t- more typos as he got older, but the copy was always spot on. He was fantastic. Hired in 1940 as a copy boy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and by a friend of his who became, you know, the top editor of the Chronicle, William German. And uh, hell, when I came to the Chronicle years ago, Bill German was still in charge, and Dave was a towering figure. He's been a towering figure for decades at the Chronicle. He uh, was was city editor during the Guyana uh, mass murders uh, mm-hmm. uh by jim jones and and the assassination of city hall but he didn't like that he wanted to be a reporter and he was a reporter right through to his toes amazing writer amazing energy uh super sharp mind he did i i really looked up to him as i know hell all of us in the newsroom who knew him did i i came to the chronicle i was with the examiner and moved over in 2000 and i was on the entertainment desk really on another floor so he was a legend for for my first several years there and then i started going in the archive and writing a lot of archive-based journalism and he was this incredible resource because i'd find something from 1948 and bring it up to him and go, hey, do you know this managing editor? He's like, oh, yeah, that's Steve Judd. You know, and then he'd tell me this, like, detailed story. Um, I remember one of my favorite moments was I was looking through the archive, and I saw a bunch of editors around a desk in the 1950s, like 51. And the chair that they were sitting on, I realized that's the chair that 
Perlman sits in. So I went up to him with the photo, and I'm like, Dave, you're sitting in a chair from 1951. And he goes, oh, yeah, those ergonomics people come in and give me a bunch of bullshit. And I listen because they're nice. But then they go away, and I say, I've been sitting in this chair. I'm 96 years old. Clearly, it's working for me. He he just was absolutely... Every time I had an interaction with him, you know, I was a little worried I was going to be bugging him and it ended up being, you know, just this fantastic moment and and I miss him, but I'm just glad we had him. I also love this clip of David Perlman explaining why he loved being a reporter and why it kept him so young. I wish I were back on a daily newspaper right now and covering stories with you guys. Yeah. How can I explain it? It's been fun. And it's been a challenge. Reporting is a challenge Mm. to get it accurate, get it fast, get it written in a way that people want to read it. And you pick, by luck or some other reason, uh, you pick an area that you can't help but have fun doing it, just as all Chronicle reporters have Fun covering their specialties, whatever it happens to be. Mm. I've always found it absolutely inspiring to have you in the the corner of the room uh, knowing that Dave was there. Dave still does it decades after decade after decade and still loves it. It makes me want to work harder. It always made me want to work harder, just having you there. Well, I won't say that's bullshit, but (laughs) anyway... (laughs) Well, I thank you, though. It's true, though, Dave. <laughs> I, thank you both. I love you all. I wish you were back there right now. Well, we wish you were too. <laughs> so I, I, on this podcast, I'm always telling people, subscribe to The Chronicle, and not just because we want your money and it's a transaction, but, but to support your local news. If you don't subscribe to The Chronicle, give to KQED or whatever your local news is you know, value these, these institutions. I wanted to ask you if you're still a subscriber to the Chronicle and, uh, if you have any messages to our subscribers. I still get the Chronicle every day. I wouldn't miss it. And, uh, I will continue subscribing to the Chronicle till the day I die. And maybe there's a way of sending it to the afterlife. (laughs) I don't know whether there is a, a, an, a, a posthumous, posthumous edition. But if there is, I will be reading it. Well, we hope Dave is reading today's Chronicle wherever he is. We'll miss you, Dr. Dave. Thanks to columnist Heather Knight for joining me today, to King Kaufman for producing this episode, and thank you for listening.